Ah, yes, you're listening to Life 101, where we live in faith every day. This is Line Upon Line, where we study God's Word line by line. And I'm your host, Pastor Adrian. Verses 9 and 10 says, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? And then he answers, Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. So if you're serious about your walk with God and you want to understand true doctrine, it's time to get your Bible and follow along as we study God's Word. It's time to be weaned from the milk. Get your Bible, tell a friend, tell your pastor about this study, and let's get into God's Word line upon line. open with a word of prayer and then we can get into the study for tonight in Hebrews chapter 9. Heavenly Father, we come before you rejoicing, Lord, just so grateful that you have opened our eyes to Jesus Christ, that in this world of confusion and deception that you have called us out, Father, and you've made your scripture available to us and you've given us the desire deep within our hearts to want to not only understand it, uh, but to live by it, to have your words alive in us, to have your law in our mind and in our hearts, uh, so that we conform ourselves to Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for him, Father. We thank you for his great love for us, and pray, Father, that you would deepen our love for him and our commitment to him and to each other and this way of life. We thank you, Father. We praise your holy name. We praise Christ, and we ask all of this in his holy name. Amen. So as I mentioned, brethren, we are uh, studying uh, Hebrews chapter 9 this evening, and that is all about the, the tabernacle. So this is about the whole argument that, Christ, that Paul has been making is that Christ is superior, and he's our superior high priest. And in this context of the superior high priest, he's now sharing with us that he is also conducting his priesthood within a superior tabernacle. And so not only is he a superior high priest, he is also the priest of a superior tabernacle within which there are superior sacrifices. 
And that's what we're going to see this evening in Hebrews chapter 9. Now, as I was preparing for this study, and I, I, what I really want to do with these studies is just show how the Bible is one integrated whole. And that you cannot understand any book of the Bible without really understanding all the books of the Bible. And there's no way that we can understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. And so a lot of times I'm, I'm constantly showing how the scriptures are fulfilling what was in the Old Testament or, or calling back to what's in the Old Testament. And as I was preparing the study with the callbacks to the Old Testament, I just found that this particular chapter, is, it, it's so dense, it, it's very thick, and Paul's logic is very intense here, that I found the callbacks actually distracting. And they were breaking up the flow of Paul's logic. So what I want to do this evening with chapter 9 is just stay in chapter 9 and not break it up by going to the Old Testament. But at the same time, I need the Old Testament to show that it's actually calling back to these things. So I'm going to go through some Old Testament scriptures first and just let's just highlight what the Old Testament scriptures say. Then I'll go into chapter 9 and just say, remember, we read this in Exodus. Remember, we read this in Leviticus. And that way we can just stay in the logic of the apostle within chapter 9. So I hope that, I hope that will work for everybody. So let's go ahead and uh, begin the study. And as I said, I want to begin with, um, with some Old Testament scriptures. So let's go back. I, I, so here in um, Exodus, what we see is in Exodus 25. So just bear with me as we go through these um, Old Testament scriptures. And then I'm going to call back to them when we're in chapter 9. So in Exodus 25, we see uh, God instructing Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So there's going to be a sanctuary, a tent, a tabernacle. And God is actually going to live and dwell with the Israelites according to all that I show you. So it's not just any old structure. There's a specific pattern. And God revealed to Moses the blueprint for this tabernacle. So it's, it has to, they have to build it according to all that I show you after the pattern or the plan of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. So none of this was just made up. None of it was just that, you know, Moses thinking, I think it would be good if we put something like that over there. It was all very detailed, given to Moses. And then Moses instructed the Israelites how to build this tabernacle. In Leviticus, we read, the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron your brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place. So they've constructed the tabernacle, and uh, it, it, it's, it has a specific structure according to what uh, God instructed Moses. And so there's this holy place that Aaron is instructed, or Moses is to instruct Aaron, that he's not to go there at any old time. Speak unto Aaron your brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place, within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. So if he was to be careless about approaching the mercy seat and just thinking he can approach it at any time, he would actually lose his life. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. So God, the God of the universe, was dwelling with Israel and would actually appear in the mercy seat 
And Aaron was to be careful about when he goes in the Holy of Holies to seek mercy for the Israelites. In Leviticus 16, thus shall Aaron, this is how Aaron shall come into the holy place. He, he just can't just come in. He's to come in with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So there are offerings that he has to bring into the holy place. He shall put on the holy linen coat, so he has to dress a certain way, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and he shall be girded with a linen girdle, and with the linen mitre or turban shall he be attired. These are the holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. So there's these very, very specific and precise instructions as to how Israel is to live with God and how the high priest is to seek mercy from God for the nation. And so Moses is to instruct the high priest as to how to do this. And then in Leviticus 4, <clears throat> we read, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, And so Leviticus comes right after Exodus. At the end of Exodus, they finish building the tabernacle, and then Leviticus begins with the holy living. Now that God is going to live with us, here's how we have to live with God. And so in Leviticus 4, he says, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, So this is how Israel can live with God as their neighbor. So, so God is going to live with us, but we are sinful flesh. So how do we as sinful people live with a holy God. And so that's what Leviticus is all about. How this sinful nation can actually be righteous before God. So Moses, uh, God says, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a soul shall sin through ignorance, not deliberate sin, because there are certain sins that if they're deliberate, you stone them to death. That's it. But if they sin through ignorance, against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not be done, so they have become unholy, and shall do against any of them, if the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people. So what do we do now if the sin that's anointed, the, the priest that's anointed sins? Let them, then let him bring for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bullock without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering. So there's a way God has made provision to deal with this. It's human beings, they're, they're flawed. And so God's system makes provision for this. And let Moses say unto the congregation, oh, sorry, Leviticus 8 now, let Moses say unto the congregation, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. So the priests had to be washed with water. Jumping to Leviticus 5 now, all of this I'll refer back to. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, If a soul commits a trespass and sin through ignorance in the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring his trespass unto the Lord, a ram without blemish, out of the flocks, with your estimation by shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary for a trespass offering. And he shall make amends for the harm that he has done in the holy thing, and shall add the fifth part thereto and give it unto the priest, and the priest shall make an atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering, and it shall be forgiven him. So there's provision. Person sins in ignorance, they can go to the priest, and they can be, the priest can make atonement for them. The, the priest sins in ignorance. 
there's provision. There's a way that the priest can now make an atonement for his sin. The priests are serving in this holy role. So Moses is instructed as to how to wash the priests so that they can serve in this role. He instructs Aaron as to what clothes he's to wear. Everything is precise. The whole structure has a very precise blueprint. The way that the priests are to operate within this structure has a very precise instruction set. And the way the nation is to interact with the priests has a very precise instruction set. Now, I want to just uh, jump to Genesis 15. All of this will become clear as we get into um, Hebrews 9. But I just want to remind you of the covenant that God made with Abraham, Abram. And it's in Genesis 15, and in beginning in verse 7, And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I shall inherit it? So that's wonderful that you're promising me the land, but how will I know that I really will inherit this land? And he said unto him, Take me a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. So remember, this is the answer. This is God's answer to Abraham. God is promising Abraham the land. Abraham is asking God, well, how will I know that I'll inherit the land? And the answer is, go and get these animals three years old, as well as a turtle dove and a young pigeon. That's the answer. So how could that, how, how does that answer the question? How, how will I know that I'm going to inherit the, la the land? Go and get these animals. And he took unto him all these. So he goes and he gets the animals and divided them in the middle. That phrase is really important. What it means is he split them in two. He cut them in half. And what we're seeing here is God cutting a covenant, making a deal. So today we'll say, let's make a deal. Back in the day, they would say, let's cut a covenant. And the way you cut a covenant is you take an animal and you slay it. You cut it in half. And what you're saying is, May this happen to me if I do not fulfill my word to you. So let's cut a covenant and then, then we can trust each other because we have this covenant between us. So God is cutting a covenant with Abraham. So Abraham took all of these animals and he cut them in two and laid each piece one against the other. So each part of the heifer is on one side, at one side, the goat, one side, one side. And so he's creating this aisle. And what they would do is they would walk down the aisle and basically say, may, may the Lord do this to me if I do not fulfill my part of the covenant. So you have a half of the covenant and I have a half of the covenant. Let's walk down the aisle together. That's what it would mean to cut a covenant. But the birds he divided not, so they're too small to divide. And when, but they were, they were still killed. They just weren't split in two. <clears throat> and when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, so all of these are the dead bodies of the animals. And then, of course, that attracts the vultures and, and the, the scavengers. So when these scavengers are coming on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. So the animals have been killed. They've been slaughtered. They've been split in two. The birds have been killed, but they're too small to split in two. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. This is cutting the covenant. And so God put Abraham to sleep. 
He didn't have to walk through these pieces. God just walked through the pieces. So God is saying, my um, covenant has nothing to do with you, Abraham. You don't have to do anything. I will do everything to fulfill this covenant. That's why we say it's an unconditional covenant, because there were no conditions that Abraham had to satisfy, which is very different from the Mosaic covenant, where there were conditions. But there, there still had to be a slain animal, but there were conditions in that case. In this case, there were no conditions put upon Abraham. All the conditions are on God. So a burning lamp passed between those pieces. Now, we jump ahead to Exodus. This is now the Mosaic covenant. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And listen, all the people answered with one voice, a singularity of, of response, and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. So this is the covenant. That here, and they were, they were told the conditions, and they're agreeing to the conditions. So there are terms and conditions with this covenant on both sides. Israel has things that they have to do, and if they do these things, God is obligated to do certain things. But if they don't do these things, God is obligated to do other things. And this is the agreement which is very different from the covenant of Abraham. This covenant is conditional, it has terms and conditions on both sides. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. So animals were slain in this covenant. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. So all these animals are slain. The, the blood is then drained. It's put into basins. Half of the blood is put into basins. And half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. So, so the, this covenant very much involves blood. And half of the blood is put into basins. And half of the blood he is sprinkling on the altar. And he took... The blood of the covenant. Sorry, he took the blood of the covenant. So notice that the covenant has. Sorry, he took the book of the covenant, and read in the audience of the people, and they said, "All that the Lord has said, will we do, and be obedient." So they're agreeing again. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. So first he sprinkled it on the altar. Now he's sprinkling it on the people, and said, "Behold." the blood of the covenant so there is blood associated with the covenant just as it was with abraham so it is with the mosaic covenant so he so as he, he sprinkled it on the altar the people have agreed and now he's sprinkling the blood on the people and he's saying behold this is the blood of the covenant which the lord has made with you concerning all these words okay so that now is the sort of Old Testament backdrop to the reasoning that Paul is going to now engage in with the Hebrews. And remember the context here is that the Hebrews are facing severe persecution, but they found a way out. That if they revert to the Judaic, Judaic religion, which was sanctioned by Rome, it was considered acceptable by Rome, whereas Christianity was considered an illicit religion, an illegal religion. 
So if they remain Christians, they're on the wrong side of the law. But if they revert to Judaism, they could be on the right side of the law. So they found a way out. Paul is shutting that exit down. And he's saying, no, you, you cannot turn your back on, on Christ. Once you accept Christ, there's only one direction, and that's forward. And so he's reasoning with them now to show how superior Christ is to anything that they have known before. And in fact, everything they've known before has simply been there to point them to Christ. So let's get into Hebrews 9 now, but we'll just go back to Hebrews 8 just to get the context leading into chapter 9. Because what a, a lot of mistakes are made in interpretation simply by lack of context. And, and 9 is, can be a little bit difficult, but if we just remember the context, it becomes clearer. So if we go to Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 10, we were dealing with the new covenant last week, and so we'll just pick it up from there, where Paul is quoting Jeremiah 31, where God promises a new covenant with Israel and with Judah, not with the Gentiles. There's no covenant with Gentiles. The new covenant is with Israel and Judah. Gentiles have to be grafted into Israel and Judah. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. So house of Israel in, in includes Judah. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind. So the first covenant, he put his laws on tables of stone. Now he says, with this new covenant, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to put my laws into their mind. And I'm going to write them into their hearts. And I will be to them a God. And they shall be to me a people. This is exactly what we saw in Exodus. That he was to be their God. He was to live among them. And they were to be his people. And they said, everything that the Lord has said, we will do. They utterly failed. And so God was obligated, as a, a God of his word, to carry out the terms and conditions that dealt with failure in the covenant. And that's basically what we see all through Samuel, through Kings, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. We're just seeing God carrying out, and, and, and numbers and um, uh, judges, all, all those texts. We're just seeing God carrying out the terms and conditions of the covenant that we read in Deuteronomy. But now he says he's going to do something else. He's going to take the same people, and rather than reject them, he's going to change the covenant. And he's going to have a new covenant with them. But this time, he's going to put his laws in their mind. And he's going to write the, his laws in their hearts. And now he will be to them a God. And the same people Israel shall be to him a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. This is the word of God. This is an outstanding promise from the God who never breaks promises. That the house of Israel, there will not be anybody, even the smallest person in Israel, that will say to their neighbor, You know, you really ought to know the Lord. You know, you're not quite living the right way. You, if you knew God, you wouldn't. Do, that, that will never happen. That the whole nation will know God and will be this kingdom of priests that God had envisioned from the very beginning. And their purpose 
will be to bring the whole world, the whole Gentile world, to God. To bring the whole Gentile world into Israel. That will be their purpose. So for them to carry out their purpose, they have to know God. And so God is working out this plan where the whole nation of Israel is going to stand on earth as the nation of priests to facilitate the salvation of the earth and fulfill the promise that we saw all the way back in Genesis 3. Now, now today, the house of Israel, which comprises Judah, but also the other 11 tribes, for the most part, they've rejected Christ. And it's the Gentiles that are coming in to Israel. And God is saying he's doing this. It's, it's the mystery of God. If we read Romans uh, 11, Romans 9, Romans 11, we'll see God's plan here. That it's actually to provoke jealousy among Israel. and to bring. So part of it is to provoke jealousy among the Jews. But also a lot of the Israelites believe that have become Gentiles. And so God is actually orchestrating a plan where he's actually bringing Israelites as first fruits, but ultimately is going to save the whole house of Israel, including Judah. But that, that we can get into later, but that's, that's the, the plan that God is working here. So we, this has not fulfilled until you see Israel on earth as the nation of priests, and they all know God. And it's their job to teach God and the ways of God. They'll say, know the Lord to the Gentiles, not to each other. Why? For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. So, you know, um, the Quran, notwithstanding, that says that God has written off the Jews. That it's God's purpose to destroy the Jews. And, and, and Jesus will not return until all the Jews are destroyed. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. And that actually makes God a liar. The truth of God is that he will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Because of his promise to Abraham, he's going to be merciful to Israel. Because the covenant cascaded down from Abraham to Isaac, and from Isaac to Israel. And God is not a two-timer. God doesn't have a marriage covenant with one nation and a marriage covenant with another nation. He's, he's committed. He's wholeheartedly committed to Israel. And he will be known, and Isaiah shows us this, he'll be, Jeremiah shows us this, he'll be known as the God of Israel forever. That is, that is his name eternally. It will never change. It will never change. He's the God of Israel. And so the fact that they're unrighteous, we agree. Israel is unrighteous. Israel is wicked. They're terrible. So what's your point? That's the nature of human beings. My point, the point of the Bible, the point of all the prophets and apostles and the point that Paul is making here is that God is righteous. God is not a liar. And because of that, he will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities, he will remember no more. In that he says, so now we're, we're starting to get into the, the reasoning now. In that he says, a new covenant, so because he said a new covenant, he has made the first old. So it's, this, is, this is Paul's reason, like you're holding on to the first covenant. I just want you to know, the fact that Jeremiah predicts 
that God is going to establish a new covenant, it automatically means the first one is old. And we talked about this last week, talking about upgrades. So we have software, we have devices. If there's a new device, it automatically means we have an old device. If there's a new version of software, it automatically means the old one is, is, is it's old. And, and um, one of the members in the chat actually said that the new indicates it's a whole, a whole new level of quality. It's not just more of the same, it's totally different. And so the first now has become obsolete. Now, so this is, this is the subject matter, that there's a new covenant. And with this new covenant, automatically the first is now obsolete. He goes on to say, Now, that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. It's done. It's over. Now, all of that is the backdrop to Hebrews 9. So now let's get into Hebrews 9 and just follow Paul's reasoning here. He's arguing that Christ is a superior high priest and that he, Christ is operating in a superior tabernacle with superior sacrifices. So that's the point that he's going to be making here. So beginning Hebrews 9 verse 1. Then truly, the first covenant also had ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. So he's just finished saying that the first covenant is obsolete because there's a new one. But he's acknowledging, he's saying, you know what, indeed, the first covenant included a worship service that included a tabernacle. There was a structure to the first covenant. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So all of these things he's telling us were in the, 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 the worldly tabernacle. That this was just part of the, the covenant. The, fir the first covenant required these things. So indeed, they, these things existed. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. So there was this holy of holies that you had to go through the second veil, which had the golden censer. And not only the golden censer, it also had the Ark of the Covenant overlaid roundabout with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's bud, rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. So all of that, the Ark of the Covenant, all of that was within the Holy of Holies. And over it, the cherubim of glory, shadowing the mercy seat. And remember we read that God said he would actually come in to the mercy seat. And then he says, of which we cannot now speak in detail. So he, he's, he has an argument that he's following, and he doesn't want to go off on a tangent. So he says, you know, I, I can't speak in detail about the mercy seat and the cherubim shadowing it, but he just highlights that that's there. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests always went into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. So the priests were there in the first tabernacle, doing the things that they needed to do in the service of God. So he's saying this is a divine service. And... It wasn't just um, 
haphazard. It wasn't ad hoc. There were very specific requirements, and we read that in Leviticus. Moses was given specific instructions as to how all of this needed to be done. And so the priest followed these instructions. That There was a, a worship uh, methodology that was associated with the first covenant. So the priest always went in the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year. And so remember we read that, that he's not to come any time lest he die. But there's a specific time he's to come, the Day of Atonement, and there's a specific way he is to come. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year. So Paul is just showing how specific the worship service was and what high regard there was associated with this first covenant. And so he would go into the Holy of Holies once a year, not without blood. There is no way he could go into the Holy of Holies without blood. He had to have blood to go into the Holy of Holies, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. So if you read Leviticus 16, which deals with the atonement service, it articulates very clearly what Aaron had to do to deal with his own sin so that he could be a holy representative to then make an appeal for the people and for the heirs of the people. Now, Paul now is reasoning. Verse 8. The Holy Spirit, this signifying. So it, the Holy Spirit was indicating something by all of this. So he's, he's reasoning with the Hebrew brethren. And he's saying, here is the whole divine service. And then the high priest, he would have to go once a year, a very specific time, into the Holy of Holies. And he couldn't do that without blood. He had to take blood for himself and then for the errors of the people. The Holy Spirit, this indicating that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. It was not obvious because there's, there's something wrong with this divine service. He can only go once a year, and every time he goes, he has to have blood. And so Paul is saying, isn't it clear that the Holy Spirit was making it clear to us that there's no way into the holiest of all? Because he has to keep doing this. While, as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So he began the argument by saying, indeed, the first covenant had a tabernacle. And it had a divine service. But you know what? The Holy Spirit was indicating to us that the way into the holiest of all has not really been made obvious. Because this ritual had to be engaged in every single year, so it's obviously it wasn't satisfactory. So he says, which was a figure for the time then present, so this was a symbol for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices, listen to this now, that could not make him that did the service perfect. So that word perfect is the Greek word uh, teleo, which really means complete. So when something is teleo, it, it means it's reached its destination, it's, it's reached its full completion. So he says it could not make him that did the service. So the high priest wasn't made perfect. He had to go back every year, and every year he had to come with blood for himself. 
So the Holy Spirit is indicating to us that, you know what? The, the, the way into the holiest of all, it's not obvious. Because this process is not, that the, the high priest is not perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So he knows that he's a sinful man, and yet he's carrying out this service, which stood only in meats and drinks and different washings. So remember we read that um, Moses instructed Aaron and his sons how they were to wash themselves in order to carry out these services. And then remember in, I believe it was Hebrews 6, where he said, you know, we're going to go on to perfection. We're going to go on to maturity. We're not going to lay again the foundation of the doctrines of Christ. And one of those was washings. So these washings, they're foundational, but they don't take us to teleos. They're, they're not teleological. They don't take us to the, the end point. And, and a good way to think about this, this teleology or this word teleos I think a very good way to it, uh, think about it <clears throat> is an arrow reaching its destination right on target. And why I say it's a good way to think about it this way <clears throat> is Torah means path. So Torah means the path of an arrow. So the law has been given to us so that we can follow this path to reach the destination of holiness and to reach it on target. But we keep breaking the law. And so Christ came as the way. Christ was the living Torah. And he was Tilios. He hit the target. And so, obviously with the high priest, every year, having to find blood for himself before he can offer for the people, the Holy Spirit is showing us something, that this whole divine service of the first covenant, it, it's not taking us to perfection. And so Paul is saying to the Hebrews, let us go on unto perfection. You're not going to find it in the first covenant. So with diverse washings and cardinal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. So there is a time of reformation. And that's what Jeremiah saw when he said, God is going to make a new covenant. And no more will you have an Israelite saying to an Israelite, you should know the Lord, because the nation will be reformed. And so all of this was temporary and given to them until the time of reformation, when Christ is going to reveal the way to perfection, the way to teleos, the way to hit the target, dead on, bullseye. So he says, all of this was imposed on them until the time of Reformation. Remember, this is what the Hebrews want to go back to. And Paul is just showing them, you're going back to nothing. You're going back to a system that cannot bring you to maturity. It cannot bring you to perfection. But Christ, and whenever you see the word but, it basically means everything before the word but doesn't matter. Strike it out. It's like when somebody apologizes to you and say, you know, I'm really sorry, but you were at fault too. But means I'm really sorry doesn't matter. What comes after but is what matters, and that is that you were at fault too. You know, uh, I, I really like you, but you know, there's a few things that I don't like. Well, it's a few things that I don't like that I want you to concentrate because the I really like you came before but. So whatever comes before but, whenever you see the word but, cancel what you heard before it. It cancels it out. And what only matters is what comes after the word but. 
So Paul is canceling everything to do, all of that divine service to do with the first covenant. Paul is canceling it. And what matters now, what comes after but? Christ being come, a high priest of good things to come. This is, remember he said back in, I believe it was Hebrews 3 where we were in, when he said, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. And then we were spending a lot of time considering the apostle, the one sent, superior to others that were sent. And then beginning in Hebrews 5, Paul pivoted. And he's been 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, going into 10, all about us considering Christ as our high priest. And so he's arguing how superior Christ is as our high priest. And he says, but Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, very good things to come, this is very good news, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. So, but cancels out the tabernacle before, the, the worldly tabernacle. Christ is operating as the high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. So he showed us the operation of the first tabernacle. And then he says, forget that. There's a greater tabernacle. And there's operations taking place within that greater tabernacle. Not made with hands. So Moses instructed the Israelites how to build the first tabernacle. It was made by men, according to God's instructions, but it was made by men. Christ is operating in a tabernacle that was not made by men. That is to say, not of this building. So it has nothing to do with the earthly tabernacle. Neither by the blood of goats and calves. So in that first tabernacle, there was a lot of blood. There was a lot, lot, lot of blood. So they were constantly bringing these animals into the tabernacle to slaughter them, innocent animals that are without blemish, and slaughtering them and taking the blood and doing what they had to do with the blood in order to appease God and dwell with the holy God. But this was all the blood of goats and calves in this tabernacle. But Christ is operating, so this was the operation of the earthly tabernacle, Christ is operating in another tabernacle, not made with hands. And the blood that he operated with was not the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. So the high priest could not go to the holy place. You know, somebody might have sinned a terrible sin inadvertently, and they want the mercy right away, uh, and the whole nation is looking for mercy right away. But the holy of holies could only be entered into on a specific day. And then the high priest who were looking for to have mercy for the nation, he couldn't just go in. He had to go in with blood. He had to sacrifice an animal for himself and then go in. And then we hope that he did that sincerely. Otherwise, he would die on the spot so that he can represent us and ask for the forgiveness of sins for the nation. Christ... Again, whenever we see the word but, you can cancel out everything that comes before the word but no longer matters. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but, so forget that. Now let's focus on what comes after the but. By his own blood, he entered in once. 
So the Holy Spirit was showing us something's wrong when the high priest has to keep going year after year after year. Now the Holy Spirit is showing us something else. Christ, with his own blood, enters in once into the holy place. So the tabernacle on earth, Moses was given a blueprint, a pattern of what is in heaven. And then there was an operation associated with the earthly tabernacle. Christ is operating in the heavenly tabernacle. And he entered into the Holy of Holies with his own blood once. Having obtained eternal redemption for us. And so he came to redeem Israel. And he went with his own blood for Israel. So Israel could not satisfy the terms and conditions of the agreement. Christ came, Isaiah shows us this as the Isaiahic servant, to satisfy the terms and conditions of the agreement. And having satisfied the terms and conditions of the agreement, God will now give the land to Israel and all the promises associated with the covenant to Israel. But Christ then took Israel's punishment upon himself, took the innocent blood of Christ as the Lamb, and presented that in the Holy of Holies to the Father once in order to redeem Israel, which was his mission. Now he says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, how much more shall it purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So, so there was a purging that took place with the goats and, and, and the rams, the heifers. How much more, if that, if that operation works so that people could dwell with God, how much more when the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his blood was offered to God? So he's saying, we have a high priest. This is our high priest. He's, he's serving in a superior tabernacle, and he's serving with a superior sacrifice. This is the confidence that he wants us to have in our high priest. Now, we're going to come to a tricky part of Scripture now. I just want to explain this part. <clears throat> Hebrews 9, 15. He says, and for this cause, because he's serving in this superior tabernacle with a superior sacrifice that will purge our conscience, that we can be holy. If, if the sacrifice of bulls and goats could make us holy, make Israel holy, that they could come before God, how much more confidence should we have that no matter what our sin is, if we are repentant and we go to Christ as our propitiation, we accept Him as our Savior, how much more confidence? We, we don't, it's, it's not our righteousness. It's not us trying to work up our righteousness. It's our acceptance of Christ and His sacrifice if we understand this, that he's operating in a superior tabernacle with a superior, with a superior sacrifice, how much more confidence should we have? So for this cause, he is the mediator of a New Testament, that by means of death, 
for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, a testament being a will, where there's a will, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. So I think we all understand that when somebody writes a will, they have to die before the will comes into effect. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator lives. So this passage from 15 to 17 is actually nonsensical. It's this insertion of an argument that comes out of nowhere. So this whole time, we have been talking about the first covenant and how inferior it is to the new covenant. And that began in chapter 8. And then all of a sudden, Paul is talking about a will and that the will doesn't come into effect until the person, the testator, dies and then the will comes into effect. And so I looked at the Greek here and the Greek is not talking about a will. It's talking about a diatheikes, diatheikes, which is a covenant. And through the whole argument through here, they've somehow decided to um, translate diatheikes, which began in Hebrews 8.10 with the diatheke. He's talking about the covenant. And he began this argument in Hebrews 10, and he continues it in Hebrews 9, and all of a sudden, we're talking about wills and testaments. And so I, I, I tried to find, like, did anybody translate this correctly? And it's like all the translators have just decided that suddenly Paul is talking about a will. But I did find this translator, Young's literal translation, where they're translating literally, and, and King James, I gotta say, I don't preach from any other version now except the old, the original King James. It's the most accurate. But, you know, these other translations, they're from a different uh, manuscript and they take license and there's this whole um, just efforts to dilute the scriptures. And so my preference is just to stick to the King James when I preach. I used to before, because the English was easier, preach from the New King James sometimes or the RSV. Now I just preach from the King James. But I gotta say, Hebrews 9, 15 to 17, King James is as bad as everybody else. But here the Young's literal translation, they've nailed it. The argument that Paul is making is that the New Covenant makes the Old Covenant obsolete. The Old Covenant is inferior to the New Covenant. And so that we had to stay on that train of thought all it began in Hebrews 8. And so here they translate it. And because of this, of a new covenant, he is a mediator. That death having come for redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, those called may receive the promise of the age during inheritance. So he's come as a mediator of this new covenant so that those called can escape the death sentence and receive this inheritance. Now, it's not about a will. It's not about, you know, there's a will and, you know, when I die, I've got an uh, 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 executor 
that's going to carry out my wishes. But those wishes do not kick in until I die. So the death of the testate, all of that's nice, but it's not what Paul's talking about. This is what Paul is talking about. For where a covenant is, the death of the covenant victim to come in is necessary. That is exactly what the Greek is saying. That with a diatheke, a covenant, there has to be one that dies in order to make the covenant of effect. That's why when Abraham asked God, God says, you're going to inherit this land. And Abraham says, how will I know that I'm going to inherit the land? And the answer is, go get these animals, three years old. Go and get them and cut them in two. Once, that an once the animals die, the covenant is in effect. When the covenant was made, the Mosaic covenant was made with Israel, animals had to be slaughtered and their blood had to be sprinkled. Because there's no covenant, what he's saying, there's no covenant without the death of the covenant victim. So somebody has to be, something has to be chosen and has to die in order to make the covenant come into effect. For where a covenant is, the death of the covenant victim to come in is necessary. For a covenant over dead victims is steadfast. So when God walked through the aisle that, that Abraham made where he split the animals in two, it's now steadfast. This, this is how you will know. How will I know that I'll inherit the land? Because we've slain the animals. For a covenant over dead victims is steadfast since it is no force at all when the covenant victim lives. So as long as the animal is still alive, the covenant isn't in effect. Once we slay the animal, the covenant suddenly is in effect. That's what Paul is saying. And that's the argument that he's making, that the new covenant is superior. So, and, and again, this, this argument began all the way back in Hebrews 8, when he says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. So Paul is arguing that this is a superior covenant. And in fact, in Psalm 50, this is the one time I'll go back to the Old Testament, but I don't want to break up the flow of Hebrews 9, but I just thought this uh, scripture really fits here. In Psalm 50, David writes, Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So there's always sacrifice associated with covenant making. So he says, for this, so we, we read in Hebrews 9, 15 to 17, the proper uh, translation with the Young's uh, literal translation. So he says, let me just read it again. And because of this, a new covenant, he, he is the mediator, of a new covenant, he's the mediator. So he's the mediator, that death having come for redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, those called may receive the promise of the age during inheritance. For where a covenant is, the death of the covenant victim to come in is necessary. For a covenant over dead victims is steadfast. It, it, it's enduring since it is, a, it is no force at all when the covenant victim lives. So that's what the scripture, the Greek is, the underlying Greek literally translates to. Whereupon, neither the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people. Remember, we read that in Exodus. So there, there has to be the death of the covenant victim. 
And so there was that death, and then Moses took the blood of the covenant victim and sprinkled it so that the covenant was in effect, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. So the blood of the covenant victim is critical to make the covenant come into effect. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. So this is this is critical part of the process. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. So remember, there's these there's a reality in heaven. That pattern was given to Moses to replicate on earth. And so Paul is saying, you know what? It was necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these things, with this blood. But the heavenly things themselves, because the, the earth was just a, was a, a replica, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So Christ is operating as a high priest in the heavens, but there has to be better sacrifice. It's a better tabernacle. It has to have better sacrifices. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. So again, that first tabernacle was made with hands. The Holy of Holies was made with hands. But Christ hasn't entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. So it's, they're, they're just symbolic of what is really in heaven. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. This is real. This is our high priest. This is what we're holding on to. And this is why we can never back down to men. Because this is our high priest. And so we have the ability to appear before God because of this work of our high priest. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with blood of others. So every single year, the high priest is taking the blood of others to cover his own sin before he can mediate for the people. Christ is not like that kind of high priest, that he should offer himself often. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. So if he was that kind of high priest, he would have to be sacrificing himself over and over and over again if he was not the perfect sacrifice. But, again, we see the word but, so we can just cancel whatever goes before it and what comes after is what matters. But now once in the end of the world has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is what he has done. And, and when we understand all of this, we understand just how necessary it was for Christ as God, as the Son of God, to come to earth as the perfect Israelite and to allow himself to be slaughtered and to then take his blood as the perfect sacrifice into the Holy of Holies once. And, and to have, quote-unquote, a religion that is spreading all over the world to get people to believe that Jesus Christ didn't die. This is obscene. And we should be deeply offended by this. For God's sake, 
we should stand up and say, no, Jesus Christ was sacrificed. He had to be sacrificed. We have no provision with God without his sacrifice. And, and there's no covenant without sacrifice. And you believe Abraham sacrificed? And that he was going to sacrifice Isaac, or you believe it was going to be Ish? Why would Abraham sacrifice if sacrifice if, if blood is not required? Is God inconsistent? He had to sacrifice. And we are so honored, so privileged, that we can go to God on the strength of the blood of Christ. We can overcome all evil, our own evil, on the strength of the blood of Christ. This, this is the power of our high priest. This is why Revelation says the saints love not their lives unto the death. They didn't care. Paul, when he was talking to the Ephesians, said he doesn't care about his life. He just wants to preach Christ. Because when we get this, it's so powerful that we want everybody to know. And so he appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so everybody has to die, and then they have to face the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. So he came to bear the sins of many. And again, I'm going to emphasize Israel. The many have to be grafted into Israel. He did not come to sacrifice himself for Gentiles. He's not going to marry Gentiles. He's come to marry Israel. And so Gentiles need to hear the gospel and be grafted into Israel to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. The scripture speaks several times of them that love his appearing. It also tells us that when he appears, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. It is a very sad day for the earth when Christ returns. But there are others, there's, there, are, there are a few that are longing for his return. They're looking for his re return. They love his appearing. And for them that look for him, shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And we'll just wrap up with the first part of Hebrews 10. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, so the law was pointing to good things to come, and not the very image of the things, so it was a replica of the things, can never, it can never, with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. And again, that word is teleos. So the law can never, with these uh, inadequate sacrifices, bring those who are following the ordinances of the first tabernacle, it cannot bring them to the bullseye of God's righteousness. But they were pointing that way. That's what they were pointing to, and, and, and they served a, a critical purpose. But let's don't be like the Hebrews of the first century and think that that whole system was it. It was inadequate, but it was pointing to the true system and the true sacrifice. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? If, if, if it could actually bring us to perfection, we wouldn't have to be doing this ritual every single year. We would have done it once and it would have been good. But the Holy Spirit was telling us it's inadequate. Because that the worshippers, once purged, 
should have had no more conscience of sins. So we'll stop there, and that sort of ends the, the argument that Paul is making to the Hebrews about the superiority of the new covenant. And with that, the operation of the high priest in the holy tabernacle in heaven. And with the operation of the high priest in the holy tabernacle in heaven, with a superior sacrifice, his own righteous blood offered once, that's it. It's, it's, it's perfect. It doesn't have to be keep going over and over and done over and over again. And so the, the covenant victim in this case is Christ. And because he was sacrificed, the new covenant is now in effect. And that's the process that we're going through now, first with a set of first fruits, but ultimately with the whole house of Israel and all those who repent of the Gentiles who are grafted into Israel. And then the whole world will be Israel. And this is the strange plan of God that he's carrying out that we are privileged to be a part of and to preach this gospel to the whole world. What a God we serve. Praise his name. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ, the great King and our great High Priest.